This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. Coming up next is something indescribable, tantalizing, and mind-numbing. Enjoy. Get a life, will you, people? I'm crying out loud. It's, it's just a TV show. Smug, confident, secure because you are sane. Do you know what madness is or how it strikes? Have you seen the demon? Surge through the corridors of the crazed mind. Come with me into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my world. Let me lead you into it. The terror from Scum of the Earth. Okie dokie, folks. I'm Frank Panacci, and I'm the Scum of the Earth. You ever sit back and think to yourself, how did we get here? What a long, strange trip it's been these past 15 or so years. I'm in my 40s. It's funny, the older you get. When you're young, you don't notice how the world moves. But as you accrue years, excuse me, you get to bear witness to a lot of big changes. These last 40 or something years I've been alive, I've watched some shit. And there's a joke about millennials, about how many world-defining events do I have to witness in my lifetime or whatever the meme is. But I came all the way back from those analog days. It's wild how things have changed. One change in particular that interests me personally is the rise of geek culture because it was such a strange paradigm shift as most things when culture changes it's you can't pinpoint those moments like what changed like what happened here nerd culture and popular culture came down to that snl sketch i always reference on our shows william shatner at the comic-con convention that was the mainstream media take on this niche subculture i mean there was a time when directors didn't have to have to say you have to say this now or you have to explain why where every director has to say they were a comic fan when they were young it's like oh i used to love comics. They have to say, if they weren't, they have to give a really good explanation as to why. I mean, you'd never see a director talking about reading comic books back when I was a kid. They were all very austere, very, mm -hmm. I've been real with you folks. I wasn't the biggest comic book guy growing up. I was a Mad Magazine kid all the fucking way. And I loved my Star Logs and my, but I really just couldn't get into serialized storytelling. Sorry. But then all of a sudden it all changed. Where playing video games, reading comics, watching Star Trek changed from being indicators of unfuckability to the status quo. So I watched the film Attack of the Dock, which chronicles the rise and fall of G4 TV and the show Attack of the Show. Made by a guy who was on the scene while it was happening, Chris Gore. He's a guy who's been covering this stuff since I was still making poopies in my pants. Well, which was technically last week, but I mean like on the reg. This was kind of a big deal for me to get this interview. Chris Gore and his magazine Film Threat was a big resource for me being a film nerd growing up. The doc is amazing because it shows that even though in terms of like overall years, it hasn't been that long a time, it's amazing. 
the amount of change that happened. And with that, I'm so happy to introduce the director of Attack of the Dock, founder of Film Threat Magazine, Chris Gore. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, before we start, I got to say that like, Film Threat was such a big resource for me, and it was one of those things that made uh, being a film geek feel cool. And so thank you so much for that before we start uh, in earnest. Oh, thanks, Frank. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, the big indie film movement in the 80s and 90s, things that were niche like nerd culture and indie film, you seemed throughout your career to be in the center of these things. How does that, how do you manage to be in the right place with these things? Well, I've always liked anything that's alternative culture, right? Like whether it's alternative music and there would be the pop music on the radio. I usually hated that stuff. <laughs> I was more into punk rock, you know? And to me, indie films are more punk rock. I remember seeing a retrospective of John Waters, like when I was 16 years old, which is way too young to see. <laughs> yes. I mean, Pink Flamingos with Divine, played by Glenn Milstead, Glenn was... Milstead, yes. Oh my God, such a, prof it had a profound impact on me. It, it It's so funny you say that. It literally hit me around, I was 17. And wow. it hit me around the same time because they started releasing them on VHS. New mm -hmm. Line had them then. And yeah, it was just like, you could do that? Yeah. Oh, and I remember then I went down the rabbit hole of seeing every John Waters movie, Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, you know. Uh, multiple you maniacs. Know, multiple maniacs. Freaking polyester. Just, it was just like, John Waters was a goldmine. Then I just, him as an author. So I've always liked everything, anything alternative culture. I started going to midnight movies. So I saw Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo. Um, That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Holy Mountain, um, Eraserhead at midnight screenings. Midnight movies became, there's a really good documentary about midnight movies that kind of tracks like how El Topo was one of the first like midnight movies. 2001, A Space Odyssey became a, a midnight movie. It was really interesting, the types of movies that were programmed to be midnight movies. So this is before, this is like in the 80s when I was a kid. I had money from my newspaper route. I saved to get a car. I wanted a car, not because I cared about like dating girls. I wanted to see every movie that was in a theater that weekend. Mm -hmm. I would go see every single film and I would switch screens because it was at a mall theater. You could buy one ticket and see all the movies that opened in one day. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that so, was a move then. <laughs> that was the move then. I got really excited about repertory theaters that play the retrospectives of filmmakers. So I got to like go down a rabbit hole. George Kuchar. Uh, are you a fan of his? Oh, yes, I know George Kuchar. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable stuff. Like, so I always like anything alt culture, whether it was music, comic books, you know, just like anything that wasn't like, here's the mainstream thing that everybody loves. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to listen to the Sex Pistols and uh, the Dead Kennedys. This is me as a snobby, you know, preteen, right? <laughs> and you, but, I bet you had those Jello Biafra spoken word tapes. I'm oh, sure. I've got those. I've seen them in, <laughs> I've seen them in person. I got to go out to Oh, wow. Did you? Oh, yeah. I've seen him in person. When I moved out to the West Coast, got to see him perform at, I forget which college. But uh, yeah, he was there. And then we hung out after because he would read Film Threat. Oh, really? So, That's awesome. Yeah. He hooked me up with Winston Smith, who you knew Winston Smith did the covers of all the Dead Kennedys albums, he did artwork for Film Threat, those early printed oh, editions. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's I was all into, 
But this is before the term independent film wasn't a thing in the early 80s. It didn't exist. Right. Yeah. They were called they were called regional movies. That's yeah. what they were called. It was really I believe it was Roger Ebert who kind of came up with the term independent film. He was participated in a conference that was put together by Robert Redford. This was in the this was when the the Sundance Film Festival was called the United States Film Festival. This is the secret origin of Sundance. So Roger Ebert came out to this conference and it was like populated with screenwriters and filmmakers and actors. And Roger Ebert was the only journalist there. So he started actually, you know, writing and taking notes. And Robert Redford's like, what are you doing? We don't want you to report on this. We just want your opinion. We want you to participate in this, you know, in, in this conversation, you know, we're trying to do like a retreat and how do we support these regional filmmakers? Because what was happening was filmmakers at the time, John Sayles and among others would like, they write scripts for these movies, they go make these movies and then they weren't very good. Okay. So how do you support these regional filmmakers and tell them, wait, 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 stop. We know you have the money. We know, we know you wrote a script. Why don't you let a professional Hollywood screenwriter look at your script? Why don't you let us help you get better casting in your movies? There are Hollywood actors who'd be happy to get paid zero to be in a smaller movie, a regional movie. So Robert Redford was really taken with these small regional movies that were coming up and John Sayles, like Return of the Say Caucus 7, that's like that era, right? Mm. So what Roger Ebert said was something very profound at this meeting of the minds. He said, we need to make these independent films popular like art films became popular in the 70s. 60s, 70s, 70s, yeah. 60s and 70s, they were the art films. Well, they stopped right. calling them art films. They called them independent films. And Roger Ebert's not-so-secret agenda was to champion independent films in the 80s. Hoop Dreams, you name it. So he would, and look, this is a big lesson for me because I did the same thing when I was on Attack of the Show. I would be on Attack of the Show. I would review the latest mainstream Transformers movie from Michael Bay, which I was obligated to talk about. But then I would review a trauma movie, <laughs> Citizen Toxie, you know, or- I was at the uh, the test, the first New York test screening for Citizen Toxie. Oh, I love Citizen Toxie. The commentary on that DVD is great. But like Roger Ebert did that when you watch his old show, uh, with Gene Siskel, he would review mainstream stuff, but there'd always be, he would throw in one and I'd be like, oh, wow, a French film. I've never heard of it. But my mom at the time, I grew up, you know, my parents uh, uh, got divorced when I was a kid. Single mom raised me, me and my sister. And um, we were poor, but I never knew it. It wasn't until I got to high school where I'm like, oh, you mean kids have more than two pairs of pants? That's weird. <laughs> but because I was so loved by my family, I didn't notice that I was poor. I just couldn't afford to be a part of the ski club. And I hated at the time John Hughes movies. That was like my high school were the John Hughes films. And I hated them because I could not relate to any of those kids. They were rich suburban white kids in Chicago. Upper middle class kid. Uh Upper middle class. And I'm like lower middle class, if not lower. And I couldn't relate to them. So my mom would tell me, she goes, don't go see movies at the mall. Go to the art house. And there was this movie theater called the Maple Theater in uh, Southfield, Michigan, that showed 
foreign films and art films and El Topo and things. They would show like Quadrophenia, you know, from the, the Who movie and like weird stuff. And I loved the weird stuff. I saw in its first run, Stranger Than Paradise at the Detroit wow. Institute of Arts. Um, I also saw Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. These movies came like, if, if they weren't released at the at the Maple, they were at the DIA. So I just would go to the DIA and I would see the mall movies because I wanted to see like, well, what is John Hughes making? Oh, 16 Candles. You know, I, uh, looking back, kind of cringe, like everything Long Duck Dawn, every time he comes out, they play the gong. I'm like, <laughs> maybe a little... And it's like, look, you know what? I'm not going to cancel the movie. I'm not going to just like, even at the time, because I had a friend who was Chinese. His name was John Wu. No relation to the <laughs> His name was literally John Wu. He's a college professor now. Um, and we're friends on Facebook. But we were, he was the guy who could make laugh in class. So that's why I like John. Because he would laugh at my stupid jokes. That that bugged me at the time. I'm like, okay, whatever. And I'm not against doing uh, uh, raunchy humor, inappropriate humor, whatever. Like, Comedy, I think, should be dangerous. I mean, Attack of the Show, a lot of the comedy now, in retrospect, seems dangerous. I was watching, I was going to ask that. It's like, it seemed like it was a corporate owned entity, but it didn't seem like there were any adults in the room. Like, no, they no. let you guys do whatever the hell you wanted, basically. They didn't understand. I don't think that the higher ups, corporate overlords, actually understood nerd culture. They didn't understand video games, they didn't understand tech, they didn't understand nerd stuff comic books or superhero movies they didn't get it at all and so what was cool was is the people that they hired every single person who worked on the show from the head writer casey schreiner to you know people like mike shaw who was a producer they got it and mike shaw was not just a producer he played batman in uh in in, in through attack of the show series here he was a recurring character of batman he did sort of a take on the Christian Bale voice, which was great. But like <laughs> everyone who works on, you know, I didn't want to leave because when I was there, we would just get into impromptu. We didn't know at the time we were just basically doing podcasts that went unrecorded, right? Because we talk about like the history of Batman or this, or this run of Frank, the Frank Miller run of uh, Daredevil or whatever. Like you would get, you would spiral into, if I, ran, if I ran into anyone in the hallway, I'd be like, have you seen the blah, blah, blah? No, I haven't. What's it about, you know? It was such an amazing creative workspace. And you know, I'm really proud to have been a part of it. And I hope that the doc comes off, the documentary Attack of the Doc comes off as a love letter to not just the show, but like that era of nerd culture. But I came from being like, look, I was a kid and watched nerdy movies. I mean, Star Wars changed my life when I was a kid and I bought movie magazines like Cinefantastique and Famous Monsters and Preview and Starlog and, you know, American Cinematographer. I mean, I was a I was a magazine and movie junkie when I was a kid. I was an indoor kid. I made Aurora model kits. I can smell the glue <laughs> already in my memory. The lemon glue was better because you could actually <laughs> Um, but you know, I spent my summers indoors reading books like Dune. I read Dune when I was 14 and it changed my life. That book, because the lead character is 15, Paul Atreides. I really identified with him. And so I was a, just a you know, I grew up being a nerd that was also bullied for being a nerd. Right. I these kids I hate yeah. to be like this guy, but it's like these kids today don't know what it was yeah. like. Oh, you were bullied. You were bullied, you oh, were shoved no. against oh. lockers. You were like threatened. 
Um, you were teased. You were picked last. Um, I was fortunate, though. I was really lucky. The high school that I went to, which no longer exists, they kind of merged it. Kimball High School uh, is where I went to in Royal Oak, Michigan. The the jocks that were there were really cool, actually. They weren't as... Uh, there were other people that were kind of abusive, but the jocks there were actually like this almost nurturing... Like, I'm friends with them on Facebook. You know, yeah. guys who went to high school were on the football team. And There's no the, Billy Zabkins running around there. No, no, no. They They liked me because I told jokes you know my way of compensating for being uh smaller physically in stature i didn't really develop until like you know when i was a junior you know i turned like 16 17 it's like oh i'm having a growth spurt it's like i'm a larger person now but <laughs> but um i just had a good sense of humor so being sort of a class clown they loved it and so like i was liked by the jocks not as but like the nerd stuff you know, you kind of like, you know, you got six long boxes of comics in the corner. You kind of go like, I'm not going to tell anyone about that. I'm just going to, it's in the corner. It's right there. So my big thing was uh, they used to have a big magazine, it was a magazine, a book called the video hand movie guide. Yes, I and, know it. Yeah. And that was my thing was I always was looking for movies that you couldn't, that was just video stores never had. So I wound up, they used to give you numbers to the distributor and I would call like I'd be 13 year old. Do you have shock treatment? The sequel? Do you know where you like sent you sold it to a video? So I would look up like where they had sold it to what video store. And then I'd call that video store and ask them to buy the movie. Like, yeah. And that's like a, that would be, that was frowned upon that kind of activity back then. <laughs> but dude, I, my life revolved around seeing movies as a kid. I don't know that it's changed much. Uh, to be quite honest, <laughs> it revolved around, I lived also blocks away from a dollar theater, the Berkeley Theater oh, wow. in Berkeley, Michigan. I could walk to it and I would walk there. It's now a drugstore, but it was a dollar to see a movie. Dude, I saw Jaws, you know, several times over the summer. Movies would play there in second release, you know? So Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars, I would just go see it again for fun on a night. I would just walk to the theater when you were, as a kid, just allowed to like, just go and walk. Yeah, it was know. bad for me that there was a theater in walking distance where I grew up. We had the Kingsway, and oh. I would just spend all day there. I would just spend all day in those places, just going. As soon as I was allowed to, like, cross the street by my own, I was like, I'm going to Kingsway. And yeah. it's just kind of scary now. It's like a little kid just walking into a movie theater all alone. That's like, that would be... Yeah, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't let my kids if I had any. No, <laughs> same here. No, when my kids were young, I did not let them do that. But, but also I always had money because I had a paper route from the time I was nine years old. It's because I wanted to buy comic books. Mm. I wanted to like buy stuff and my allowance in order to earn my allowance. I wasn't just given an allowance. I had to mow the lawn. I had to shovel the sidewalk. I had to do the dishes. Uh, you know, you want that? You better earn it. You're going to earn it if you want your, you know, $2 a week or whatever it was my mom was giving me. But um, then I just was like, well, I want more stuff. I'm going to have paper routes. And that's how I made money. And I was able to do stuff that taught me a lot of great lessons when I, I mean, I started film threat. Like I came up with the name when I was in high school. And then the first issue came out like my first year at Wayne State University in college. The first issue came out. It was February 6th, 1985. And uh, yeah, I had partnered with a guy named Andre Seawood. He had articles. I had kind of this vision, some other articles like, yeah, let's put out this fanzine. So there's a whole other documentary being made about film threat called Film Threat Sucks. Because it's a <laughs> it's a big story from the 80s and 90s. I've been working on it for like a decade. 
you know, but the director of it, Ethan Minsker, I'm I'm just like a creative producer on it, but it's been a project that's uh, been in the works for years. I hope that you'll get to see it like in a year because we plan to submit to film festivals. Here's the poster, like right there is oh. the teaser poster. I mean, film yeah, Red sucks. Now you owned it, then you didn't own it, then you got the rights back. Yeah. Like you had a, it was a lot of back and forth. Dude, there's so much drama. There's so much drama around it. I can't <laughs> wait for people to see it. Oh, so the it's, film's going to cover those, those. Oh, opens. it goes straight into all the drama. It's crazy. I mean, you dealt with, what's his name? Uh, the penthouse guy. What's his name? Uh, no, no, Larry no, no. Flint. Larry, Larry Flint. Flint. Larry Flint. Oh, help, but, uh, Larry Flint's in the movie. Larry Flint's is he? in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I'm gonna see it. How was it reconnecting with everybody from Attack of the Show? Well, I didn't reconnect with everybody. I, I mean, mean the, yeah. the people behind the scenes. Um, it was cool. It was weird. It was, you know, look, I, I first of all, it was under terrible circumstances. Because when I started doing interviews with people, it was in the pandemic. Like, oh, really? That's what oh. Dude, we I've started been doing this show, every film I've been interviewing people, it's just like nightmare story after nightmare stories about trying yeah, to get it's... And now a word from our sponsors. Coming soon to theaters. I'm Professor Kansas Bowling. I'm a graduate of the University of Teenage Studies, earning my PhD in The Young Girl. This is a film for all you mothers and fathers and those who wish to be. Parents beware. Lock up your 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 no, that isn't what happened. She's fucking dead. We're gonna fucking deal with it, okay? Should we take her to a hospital? No! You should not. Me! Caged animals? It was, it was violent. You're not the only cuddly toy that was ever enjoyed by boy. We're here to tell you about how hard our lives are. Being teenage girls. La, 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 la. Cuddly Toys, getting canceled at a theater near you. I swear, this city gets crazier and crazier every day. Hey, mister. Oh, jeez, we got a live one. Hey, buddy, the English nobleman in my teeth told me something. Hey, if you go to wnuf.bigcartel.com, you get the out there Halloween mega tape and other products. I bet you didn't know that. Did you know that the dust balls in my living room, they're there on purpose. Did you know that? Um... You, you want like a dollar or something? You just throw a cat at me? <laughs> oh my god, are you okay? I saw everything. Yeah, I think so. I'll tell you one thing though. I'm not gonna rest until I find out more about how to purchase the out there Halloween mega tape and other products from wnuf.bigcartel.com. I can tell you that much. Yes, I too would like to learn more about how to purchase the out there Halloween mega tape and other products from wnuf.bigcartel.com. We started shooting March of 2020 and we had actually built out a studio where we had the lighting and all this. We did our first interview with a, a guy named Frank Myers, who was a um, producer on Attack of the Show. And then 
we had other interviews scheduled. Well, all of them, you know what happened, March 2020, pandemic. My guy who was uh, my producing partner, uh, Bobby Schwartz, who's also the editor on the doc, he got COVID and it lasted months for him. He got a very bad version of it. He got the early version. Which the was early just, version. Yeah. yeah, he got the OG. <laughs> he got COVID. the OG. Yeah. So he was really sick for months. And it was like, we don't even know, like, can we even like, how do you make a movie? And then it was like, by the end of the year, I'm like, well, we're going to focus on creating a library to make the film. So we started doing that. I said, well, I'm going to do interviews, but I'm going to do it over a live stream like we're doing right now. I'm going to record it and it's just going to be audio interviews. And this will be an, an archival documentary where you're going to see the things that people are talking about. Then you'll see like soundfuls of, you know, what's actually happening and you'll kind of be immersed in it, right? You're not going to cut to the present day with video of people you don't even recognize because they're not famous. You wouldn't know who Genji Keen and Alan Wu are if you saw them. They're the two directors of Attack of the Show. Combined, they directed over a thousand episodes of the show. And so they're both interviewed for the doc, along with the head writer, Casey Schreiner, along with, you know, the head executive, John Ryber. So I thought, well, these are the people that are going to tell us stories that have never been heard and they're gonna be very critical. You know, if I do interview a lot of the on-camera talent, what are they gonna say? Yeah, it was great to work with so-and-so. It was so much fun to work with so-and-so. So-and-so is so great. So-and-so is so great. I love working with so-and-so. It would have devolved into what I call a junket style interview where there's no substance. So, and Kevin and Olivia have both been interviewed multiple times in other places on podcasts and whatnot. So I want to look for the news stories. And we did use some of that in the doc. You'll hear things that both Kevin and Olivia say that kind of is a culmination of things. They think about things. And that's their story to tell. Really, it's not my story to tell. I wanted to tell it this from a fan's perspective with kind of one foot in, one foot out. You know, I was on the show every week doing DV Tuesday and I was a backup host, but also, you know, I was a fan of the show. So I would watch everything but me because I already know what I said. And uh, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a fun experience. So I hope people just sort of brings people back. It's like a, it's one of those archival doc that kind of take you to a period. And who would even think that the early 2000s would even be a period, but it's, it is, it is a period. It's shocking, shocking how different things were from a technology standpoint, from a pop culture, superhero movies were not a thing. Yeah, social media didn't exist. I mean, there was email, right? Um, gaming was even less sophisticated. It was, but... still in a, it was about to jump into the mainstream, but it was still yes. a niche thing. It was still in all those things were like, that was the thing about it. it. Like you covered such things that were niche that are now the cornerstones of our modern culture. Correct. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing how you guys, like, again, you were, it's, you were on the scene, right. When it like hit, like right before it blew. It's funny going back, watching the documentary, there's a section where you talk about E3 and it's just like, now there's no, this is, this is it. Like no more E3. Yeah. It's weird how many things like while we were making the doc happened, <laughs> like E3, like I think we can just call it dead now, can it's we? It's done. Yeah. And either other conventions like LA Comic Con, they have a room with video games. They have a huge room filled with games and streamers and all this. I'm like, oh, this is this is E3. 
It's just E3. And, and you know, G4 even coming back, that threw a wrench. Like, okay, how are we going to handle this? Does the doc end with the successful relaunch of the network? Doing it in song was the the way to go. With- that was my whole intention was let's just, and, and Zach Selwyn from the beginning, when I wrote this like scriptment out of like what the movie was going to be, it was always like Zach Selwyn is the Greek chorus. He's going <laughs> to give us, and I'll, I'll give you a little tip. Uh, April 24th, the day that um, Attack of the Dock comes out for on video on demand, we're also dropping the soundtrack. Uh, Austin Smith, the composer, his music is on the soundtrack and all of Zach Selwyn's songs, including a couple of songs that didn't make it into the movie. They're all on that soundtrack. It'll be on Spotify and other uh, music platforms. So we're, it's weird, like, hey, an official soundtrack for a documentary, but I want, it, I want it to be fun. I want it to be this fun revisitation. And Zach kind of gives you, like, quick history. And um, Zach is going to be at our premiere on the 21st, actually, which is going to be a lot of fun. He can make up a song, like, boom, on the fly, just right there as you're sitting. He's, uh, he's so quick. But uh, look, I, I just think that like that did throw a huge wrench of the new G4 because even the new G4 launched and then there was that huge controversy with Frost and I get it, right? Like she has a point. People are jerks on the internet. That will never not be a thing. Yeah. There will always be t- people who are trying to troll, who are saying things that are inappropriate. A lot of times these are people that are probably too young to even be on the internet and they're not supervised by their parents never feed a troll. And <laughs> I, 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 that happened early on in the network. And it was like, oh, I just was like, I thought this was going to be this like celebration and love and, and uh, people reacted so strongly to it. I think the old G4 of something like that, like I, uh, like her sentiment, I get it. I agree with her, you know, to, to, to be quite frank, like the female talent on the network had stalkers like um morgan webb morgan webb uh when she walked to her car once and somebody was waiting for her so it became a thing all of the female talent at g4 back in the old days and it became a rule had to be escorted to their cars by security look there's an element of crazy people don't let them know it affects you don't let them know that it's getting in your head the way that like to me the way that olivia handled anything like a mistake or a thing she would laugh at herself. She turned it into a joke. She made a, she misread the teleprompter and said <laughs> Mick Hammer. And what is Classic her reaction? Moment. She laughed. And the next day they turned it into a bit. The, the requirement, it was an unspoken requirement. If you're going to work on Attack of the Show in front of or behind the camera, you better have a sense of humor because you better have a sense of humor about yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. And, you know, G4 really like had like, you know, four or five years to kind of grow into its own before it's like, hey, this is like a real network now. This is and the new G4 just got off to a start that maybe rubbed fans the wrong way. I, I And I'll say that they were more than likely justified to feel that way. But I also understand it from uh, Frost's point of view there. But there just may have been a better way of handling it. Right. Yeah. There may have been a better way. It's not for me to say. It's not my story to tell. We kind of like didn't re- we didn't really delve too deeply into um, into the new G four because it was it's been so covered on YouTube. Right. I mean, it, yeah, YouTube I mean, is so many commentary videos. channels have already picked its bones clean. 
I can't say anything new or fresh other than what I just told you. And that's my personal opinion. And that's not the documentary I was trying to make. And it was, yeah, you're really trying to capture that moment. Like right. it really, and it has nothing to do. That's why I could imagine that being creatively a problem. It's like, ugh, because I'm trying to like capture this specific moment in time and what that led to. And like that kind of, yeah, that kind of breaks the, uh, it like breaks kind of like the theme there a little bit. Dude, yeah. we were picture locked before the network was shut down. The network was shut down kind of, I think it was mid-October, October 16th, I believe, um, last year. And we had already picture locked the movie and we're like, oh, what do we do? Like, we can't keep. And then we had Kickstarter backers that were very anxious, like, where's the movie? And I'm like, there was a pandemic. (laughs) Cut me a little slack. I mean, it took me twice as long to make the doc than I had planned. I planned about, it's going to take like two years and it took like three and a half. So it is what it is. It is what it is. But it came um, out great. I just got to say, oh, thanks. I think our time's almost up, but it was really great. Before you go, I got to ask one thing. What was it like working with Lawrence Tierney on Red? <laughs> oh, wow. You know about that movie. Of um, course they do. Scott Spiegel. Red. And, yeah. And uh, well, because the, the, the two bar tapes are like, I grew up with those. Those are my favorite things on the planet. Dude, I still love them. I, not only did I love the two bar tapes, I collected prank phone calls. I wanted to make a documentary about that. Then someone else made one. And it's like, uh, you know, so many times I'll be like, you know, behind the eight ball. I'm like, oh, I should have made a doc about that. Someone's already <laughs> making it. But you know, the two bar. Yeah, d- dude, working with Lawrence Tierney, that guy was off camera, a freak. <laughs> I've he watched Tarantino talk about it. Like He was episode. raunchy off camera. He was, didn't care. But also every time we went out with Lawrence, he would drink and it was like, please, Please, Lawrence Tierney, don't get us in trouble. <laughs> don't, don't like get in a fight with someone at a bar. You know what I mean? Like, I was always worried that like he would get like violent. And so we had to like kind of calm him down, like, hey, Larry, like, hey, hey, pal, hey, buddy, like, chill. And uh, it was great working with him. And, you know, that I mean, it's that perfect movie. casting. Like, how do you like, like, that's like, who do you cast as no Red? That, that's that Red. Voice. That's Red. Lawrence Tierney. That's, that's Red. So, I mean, look, it was a little short film I wanted to make. What's weird is how well it sold on VHS. And then eventually I did a special edition DVD. So I'm sure <laughs> I've got it somewhere. I seen back in. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it was fun. And Scott Spiegel, like doing me a favor. I mean, I think I shot the whole thing in two days. Um, and I, I paid Larry like a thousand bucks at the time to be in the to be in that movie. But it's a fun little short film. It was not a film festival movie. It was really made to be entertaining. Scott Ian from Anthrax actually gave me a song to put in it and i just traded him for like a like i think a couple hundred vhs tapes and he gave it out <laughs> to his friends here i'll give you this song to use cool just credit me like it was fun that was the wild west of indie film yeah man it's uh i appreciate that you saw what i was trying to do with this film absolutely you know and uh wow you really know your you know your indie film dude <laughs> Holy yeah, I man <laughs> i know my shit <laughs> yeah thank you oh my god uh dude we're we are very much alike thank you so much yeah I love, awesome. i'm a fan from way back so th- this was a real honor oh, thanks so thank you so much cool well reach out to me man i'll have to do your show again oh i uh, absolutely i know fun. it's like this is a junket but i'd love to talk like about uh, anything like a, we can just pick a movie to talk about or a couple movies and just freaking go off oh i'll go I was gonna. I, I was. I, I just rewatched Chan is Missing. Do you remember that? No, uh, Wayne, no. What, oh, Wayne Wang's first film. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was saying. Uh, uh, oh my god. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm a big door. And it's funny you working with Tierney. Well, she hasn't thrown me off yet. So Tierney, <laughs> uh, 
it's funny because like Tarantino had such a handful with him on Reservoir Dogs. Dude, he do you know what happened during the shooting of Reservoir Dogs? He unloaded a weapon. <laughs> it, I, I don't want to say the circumstance. He unloaded a weapon. The bullets from unloading the weapon went into the apartment next to his. He uh, Lawrence Bender had to put up his house as collateral to to get bail to get Tierney out of jail. Oh my god! That is not that story has been told by other people that happened during the filming of Reservoir Dogs. So uh, awesome. we can talk more about it. I, I got to get to my next interview. I know I got to go. I'm sorry. But, I'm getting but, uh, thank you, all, Annie. Sorry about that. Frank, Frank, thanks, man. Dude, you know your indie film, and I appreciate that you like the film. Uh, and, yeah, I and, love it. Uh, I loved absolutely love what it. I was thanks, trying to man. do. So, Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories if you're brave enough. (laughs) 